There is a classic mantra among cyclists, people who ride bikes. I'm one of them. And that mantra is this. There are two kinds of people who ride bicycles, those who have crashed and those who are yet to crash. Accepting that crashing a bicycle is a part of riding a bicycle is something that is hard at first, but it is something that a cyclist plans for simply by strapping on a helmet every time they go off to the shops or to take their kid to school or to get to work or to just ride with their friends. To take that kind of thinking to the highest level, well, that's when you start getting into the world of disaster planners, people who have made it their life's work to help communities, large and small, plan for the day when something goes horribly. Not if, when. My guest this week, Lucy Easthope, is a disaster planner. And the lessons that she has around assessing risk, accepting that awful things happening is a part of life, and how then to live every day knowing both of those things, well, I found this conversation pretty life-changing. I can't wait for you to hear it. Before we get to that, I don't make this show alone. There's some great human beings that help me make it every week, and I need to pay them because they're awesome at what they do. To help me pay them, we're going to play some ads right now. If you'd like an ad-free version of this show, I'll tell you how to do it and get amongst that a little later on. But here's some ads, depending on where you're listening. You may not hear any. And then we'll get to Lucy. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Disaster planners live differently. You know, we we live and love and laugh differently. We're not hedonistic. We tend to, you know, we do have a pension fund, but we also know that today is, is, is there's no guarantee of tomorrow. We live as if life is very fragile. So my children never go off to school without me telling them how much I love them. We don't go off on a fight. You, you sense the fragility of life very differently. And also there's a lightheartedness in that. They, you know, I think it's really important 
that you know to em- embrace embrace the day and I, I genuinely believe that I know it sounds trite but it's it's really important to me that was disaster planner and author of the book when the dust settles professor lucy easthope and this is better than yesterday This is Better Than Yesterday. Thanks for being a part of the show, a podcast that three times a week is here to make your day-to-day better than yesterday by having conversations with people from all over the world, from all walks of life, some of them experts in their field. Each one of those conversations has got a little bit of something that will help your day become better than yesterday, and that is what it does been doing it since 2013. There's hundreds of episodes, hundreds to get stuck into. And um, they all do exactly the same thing. And I'm stoked to be a part of it. Mondays and Wednesdays, I'm with a guest. Fridays, I'm here with you. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Hi, I'm Osher. I'm a uh, podcaster. I'm a TV host. I'm an author. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I'm a suitcase unpacker. I'm a relocating back from Queensland guy, because we've all moved back. We're up on the Gold Coast for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, actually, making a TV show. And we're back down here. I'm a, a motorcycle in the rain rider. I'm a, a toddler nap put to better, because I just read a couple of stories very slowly to make sure it was super boring so that Wolfie fell asleep for his midday nap which has been missing the last few days. Um, yeah, and I'm here a couple times a week, and I'm grateful you can be here. If you are uh, interested in any other podcasts that I make, I'm a part of a show called Dad Pod with Charlie Clawson, another dad. Dad Pod is simply, it's a podcast by dads for dads who don't want to be shit dads. Charlie and I have been making the podcast since before our um, little kids were born. There's older kids in our life. Well, Georgia is older, my eldest. And it's really good, and I'm I'm super stoked to get Dad Pod back on the on the air because it's really good and it's going really well and it's thoroughly worth a listen. So, if you are a parent or know someone who's a parent or you're going to be a parent or you want to send it to your own parent or you're thinking about being a parent, it's great, and I'm I'm really really proud of it. So you can find Dad Pod wherever you found this podcast. If you need me, I'm easy to find. I'm on Instagram, Osher underscore Ginsburg, and um, just email me if you want. Send Osher email at gmail.com. So, let me tell you about my guest today. Lucy Easthope, Professor Lucy Easthope, is a disaster planner. She is a senior lecturer at the University of Lincoln, a teaching fellow in mass fatalities and pandemics at the Centre for Death and Society at the University of Bath, and she's a guest lecturer on emergency management programs at the Universities of Leicester, Huddersfield, Dublin City and Coventry. Her wider portfolio includes the legal aspects of emergencies, identifying lessons after an incident, and community resilience in practice after incidents like that. Lucy has, she's done extraordinary work. She's developed contingency plans, training programs, and exercises with a number of organizations, including airports, airlines, governments of all sizes, charities, universities, the police. And she's also been boots on the ground so many times. She has participated in the response to major incidents, including aviation disasters, the terrorist attacks in Bali, the operations at Breeze Norton during their military campaign in Iraq. And she's written a fantastic book about her life's work. It's called When 
the dust settles. It is an extraordinary journey through her life's work at the same time as taking us through you know, what she's done throughout her career, it is just page after page of lessons about how we might indeed live better and fulfilling lives, not just under the expectation of disaster, but also in the aftermath. And that's a big thing for Lucy. It's not if disaster happens, it's when disaster happens and just changing our thinking around that and living with the expectation that no bad things do happen and that is a part of life. It's, it's it's extraordinary reframe. And in all of this, Lucy is a delightful human being, just full of joy, which might surprise you as she's a person who has in her career been, oh, she's done things like setting up post-disaster mortuaries, which have gone on to handle the corpses of thousands of victims of an extraordinarily large and, and devastating disaster. And she is yet somebody who, who goes through life with just joy, not out of callousness or, or shutting things off. Or It is because of this exposure to the amount of, of death and disaster that she's seen that she does live a life full of joy, which you'll get to, and you'll, you'll understand it when you hear her speak. It's truly a wonderful book. It's called When the Dust Settles. It's out right now. And I'm, I'm so grateful that Lucy made the time to speak with me because it's a conversation that I hope leaves you a little more open to the idea that when bad things happen is a far more appropriate way to live than if bad things happen. And keeping that in mind, how your day can be just a little bit more excellent because of that knowledge. It certainly did it for me. And, it, you know, I'm thrilled that I had the chance to speak with her because it was really powerful. And I, and I really hope that you get the same result when you listen to this conversation. If she's fascinating on Twitter, if you want to go follow her there, Lucy Gobag, L-U-C-Y-G-O-B-A-G. She's on Twitter. The book is called When the Dust Settles. Enjoy this conversation with Professor Lucy East Hope. G'day, Lucy. How are you? Good morning. <laughs> good evening for you. I'm very good, thank you. Where in the world are you right now, Lucy? I'm I'm in my bedroom, actually. <laughs> uh, normally I would record downstairs, but because of the time of day it is, there are two small children being packed off to school, uh-huh. uh, which is a big, big theme of my work, is the uh, constant battle between being a very professional, strong woman and <laughs> getting two small children off to school. <laughs> uh, but w- which country in the world are you in right now? Oh, good question, yes. I'm in the United Kingdom. Uh, I'm in the north of the United Kingdom, uh, and uh, yes, I'm very, uh, very, very pleased to be here. But I'd like to be where you are. That looks lovely. Oh, but our, our colonial overlords. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully more benign these days, but not always. It's a, a topic for another time, Lucy. It's certainly not about, you know, disaster preparedness or disaster recovery, but it's it's certainly interesting how the 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 mindset of colonialism is still in existence and still, you know, no no no, we're gonna come over there and we're gonna take your stuff and then we're gonna make a lot of money off it and sorry, you don't get to use it. You know that still that still happens. <laughs> to yeah, us. We've actually got, has obviously huge relevance to uh, disaster management yeah. at the moment. Yeah, oh, it's happening right now in Australia. You know, we've got all these natural gas resources, um, which I don't personally agree with the fact that we're selling and burning. But um, uh, the companies that take them from our country pay no tax. Mm. I'm like, what? What? Yeah. Pardon what? And but that's kind of 
It's still that vibe, you know? It's like it's the uh, 1600s all over again. It's <laughs> weird but with times. <laughs> yeah, any business model is good when your raw material costs nothing. Lucy, how how far yeah. away would you say you are from, from the part of the world where you grew up right now? Oh, yeah, so that's a, a really important city to me. That's the world-renowned city of Liverpool. And now I moved during the pandemic. I'm about 40 minutes away from from, from that wonderful place, which is very much who I am and, and, and at the heart of me. So I'm about I'm about 40 minutes, which is nothing in Australian time, to uh, to Liverpool. And uh, although I don't actually live in the in the city, it will always it will always have my heart. And from reading your work, it's uh you know, there's a particular incident in in that city that I I will never forget because I was I was old enough to understand what was happening. But there's a particular incident in your city that pretty much shaped your entire career. Oh, absolutely, and that was the that was where you know everything came from, really. And, and it's very interesting what you say that it has global resonance. Um, I think anybody who was alive, wherever they were in the world, ha- has a memory of it. Uh, so it's 1989, the 15th of April, and it was a stadium crush at the Hillsborough Football Ground. And you have both the disaster on the day and then also the aftermath and particularly how the community and the fans are, are treated in the aftermath. And uh, my wonderful dad uh, was very affected by what happened. And he had he was a teacher in Liverpool. He had school kids at the game. And as the coverage, you know, this, this state blaming of the fans just got worse and worse. I remember him saying, you know, in his great sort of Scouse accent, somebody needs to sort this. And uh, I took that as a direction. And I decided really from the earliest age that I was going to work in the aftermath of disaster. You know, I think from the earliest age, I understood that things might happen. But why would we treat families so badly and with such contempt? And that was that was the start of the path, really. Of course, I remember the Hillsborough disaster. And if, if you, you the, the quick version, I hope I don't get anything wrong, there was some but like a cascade of mistakes that happened and some gates that got opened that shouldn't have been opened and way too many people tried to get into a, a, a already overfull stadium. Yeah, so the final death toll is 97. Um, and what happened was uh, a person died after and then a further person died a few years after. And then the, the death toll actually got amended to 97 this year when the final uh, person who'd been in a very severely injured state right. died. And uh, it's, I mean, it was just, yeah. as you say, it was this catastrophic series of failures. And those failures are often pretty unforgivable. But what makes it worse? And of course, it's something, as I say, you know, in my, in my book, it's something I've seen so often is that um, uh, the, the state sort of turns on the people most affected. And that's just awful to see. And uh, yeah. it's not an unusual uh, encounter yeah. for me after disaster at all so the fans were blamed for forcing the opening of the gate uh which they which they hadn't done yeah and and this is uh this is not not uncommon um un- unfortunately in certainly in crowd crush disasters i um that was uh, the photographs if you've ever seen any of the photographs of this or any of the footage it's it's absolutely harrowing. Of yeah. course, it's a football game. There's 20 cameras in the field, mm. right? And so a lot of it is is documented quite in a harrowing way. And as a young man going to gigs, I remember both my parents were doctors and they had studied in the UK or my mum studied in the UK. And when she saw this go down in Liverpool and she knew I was starting to go to concerts, she would always tell me, like, if you the moment you can't get your hands away from your chest, go backwards, whatever. However good the band is, I don't care, go backwards if you can. And that was all, that always stuck with me. And um, oh, yeah. we we had a, a we had I was working on a festival here called the Big Day Out when uh, a young woman died actually. And um, 
uh, it was a, a similar, it was, a, it was a crush and it was, it was horrendous because it's so completely powerless. Um, cause when else do you get thousands of people together when they're either at some, they're all there at something that they want to be at, yeah. you know, yeah, generally. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that is a, you know, there's always a, there's always a, uh, a, a sort of privilege a part, a part of my work is seeing the work, for example, now that goes into stewarding and event safety and, uh, you know, one of the themes that I, I weave in is is sort of as a as a young woman funding my way through university was to sort of become a security guard at events and you go on training to monitor the crowd and you're there to support. And I think one of the things, it's terrible, things improve or things, things are taught, but really that was such a, a shock to the world that it has uh, hopefully transformed some aspects of crowd safety for, for you know, in, in memory. It was, it was totemic enough. But it's um, it's yeah. it's it's really really difficult. Um, you know, it, it's a constant challenge yeah. in in crowd and safety management. Oh yeah, there's and I've heard that in many other ways. I've heard it in like every every safety rule here is written in blood. You know, yeah. I've heard that yeah. uh, on a factory floor. Yeah, and, um, absolutely. And I've also uh, I'm a, I like scuba diving with my wife and when you go through the dive tables of how long you can go and the decompression tables, you're like. People died to get this data. Yeah. People died yeah. horrible decompression sickness deaths to figure out yeah. that 42 minutes was about as long as you could go at this depth. Yeah. And it's harrowing um, uh, that yeah. this stuff exists, but it is, you know, it is your, your, your work focuses a lot on what happens after um, because this is, I guess, this is the, the, the world we live in. We can't just get up and go to greener pastures that, you know, that causes all, all kind of other problems. Many times communities or places, they can't, um, they can't relocate. At what point does someone like you get a phone call? Well, it can vary hugely. Um, and, you know, a large part of my work actually is is the planning and the training for things that may may never happen. <laughs> you know, the last few years we've, we've seen most of them, but certainly uh, a lot of the time, and, and you know, this was a, this was a sort of part, I think, of, of being in, in, an, in another world, really, in a world that the world, you know, the public didn't see, is that you spend an awful lot of your time not getting a phone call and, and planning for things that don't happen. Yeah. And then I've worked at times where a call has come in much before the news, actually, you know, you know, and sometimes again, calls have come in for things that that didn't materialise. So I've I've been in situations where an airline has had a mayday from a pilot and rung for assistance from a disaster management company, um, and hasn't um, hasn't necessarily uh, needed us. Thank thank goodness. But generally at the moment, um, it comes by like everything really in life. It comes by somebody who's worked with me before sends me either a WhatsApp or a text message and says, I think we're going to need you in a, in a strategic uh, coordinating group. And, uh, you know, I wait to be asked. And so it, it, it usually comes in about 48 hours after the event. I'm much more networked now. And I think the pandemic has really helped explain and, and obviously writing about it in When the Dust Settles has explained a lot more about the role of recovery. I get a lot of senior commanders now saying, oh, we definitely ring you straight away. <laughs> but that's not always been the case. And the sad thing is when right. you're called too late, really, um, to come and get involved. Because what, what the whole theme of my work is, is that mistakes made in the early response can have a huge effect on individual families and people and communities. Um, and that if I can head those off, we can, we can perhaps help towards a better recovering. Um, but that involves being, invo you know, involves being asked from the start. So it's 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 a it's a delicate balancing act. 
You do a lot of work with um, not only private companies or organisations like, I'm, I'm guessing, sporting leagues and things like that, but also local, state, federal governments, national governments. In, in your experience, is acceptance of the fact that as much as we don't want bad things to happen, bad things are going to happen. In fact, they're more likely to happen than not happen. And at some point, hundreds of people will die probably on a really lovely day in your city or town. The acceptance that this is a fact, is that a hard thing for, for people who you're working with to, to kind of get their head around? I think at strategic level, it's a very hard thing. You know, at operational level with fellow emergency planners, it's something we, we're very, um, not we would never be comfortable with it, but it's certainly there in our language and our planning. But at strategic level, no, it, it's never it's never easy to convey that. And certainly now, I think we live in a world, um, certainly in the in the Western kind of developed world, where these things are not expected to happen. So you're immediately facing a tide of of why, and quite rightly so, for all the reasons I've just explained. You know, I want those questions as to how on earth did this happen. One very simple trick, and I think one of the things mm. about um, when the dust settles is you see me writing about how I'm being schooled. You know, I don't go into this going, these are the lessons from disaster recoverer. These are Lucy kind of learning hard, learning hard mm. all the time. And one of the things that I learned very early on to say when I was planning or training was when the disaster occurs, when the plane crashes, when the building collapses. And because if you say if, <laughs> you know, you're kind of buying them out of, of planning for it. So it's when. And, um, you know, it's quite confronting, you know, that, that idea. Um, and, and generally in meetings all of the time, I'm introducing ideas that you can see are causing quite a lot of confrontation to the room. And that, you know, the one you've outlined there is probably one of the biggest that actually, you know, these things uh, do happen. I think because we, we, you know, here in the United Kingdom, we don't have a, a same sort of set of geographical hazards that, that say Australia or New Zealand have, we a lot of our failings are socio-technical and theoretically very preventable. So it is it is difficult um, to sell the idea and, and should we, you know, that's a question itself of, of, of the inevitability. Um, you know, and one of the, the highest national risk for the world next year will be a global flu pandemic. Um, but good luck to me for trying to sell that at the moment. <laughs> you know, that's the that's the difficulty. It will sit at the you know the top of our national risk register as the highest risk, but nobody's really got the the appetite apart from the planners to worry about it. Yeah, you mentioned something really fascinating, Lucy. Your your job is to help communities plan ahead for when disaster happens, not if, but when. Now. A lot of people listening, they're not in the business of helping a, a government plan for when the earthquake happens or when the tsunami hits or, you know, when the plane crashes. But through our day, through our planning of our life or when our kids are going to school or something like that, how can we learn from that? How can we not use the words if when we're planning for tricky things that we'd want to avoid and start using the words when? What, 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 can, we, what can we learn from that? It's a double, you know, it is a, it is a double-edged sword. You know, one of the, the conclusions I've come to at this age is not everybody has to live like a disaster planner, you know. You know, I'm quite happy that people just sort of in many ways carry on with their lives. I think there's a middle ground, and I actually find that my Australian friends are much closer to where, you know, good, good preparedness is than my UK friends because you have, you know, different ge geological hazards and you have things like people would, if they were driving to friends across a, a, a large, swathe of the outback you would plan differently when I um, meet with my Australian friends I often find that they they think we here are quite poor 
at preparing ourselves as families and we're quite poor at at um, talking about about risk in a different way. I think even your wildlife is something that we couldn't imagine having here. And you build a culture, you know, your school children are, are trained and schooled slightly differently. And that's where I would like us to get to. I do, I do think we have missold, particularly to our youth, the idea that, you know, work hard and life's great, you know, and, and, and we've sort of stripped out the ideas of, of being ready for, for difficult things. And, and, and I certainly see a move to that here, you know, a bit more preparedness mm-hmm. about things like first aid and um, certainly I think as things get tougher economically looking out for each other differently we've just had a a major um, series of storm reports into some storms that we had in the winter that have shown just how unprepared we are for things like the loss of overhead power so there's, there's things I would like to do but I'm also I'm also comfortable, you know, and it's something I've really explored <laughs> in analysing myself that maybe, you know, I am I am and my, my tribe are a bit different from other people with national government. There's certainly no excuse, you know, so with them, I'm much I'm much tougher. Yeah. And, you know, there's an anger and a slightly sort of scathing view that, you know, I have about, you know, these things were perfectly predictable, flooding, fire. Uh, the pandemic. These were all predictable risks. They were all well planned for. And the only the only failure in the chain is when it's it's almost impossible to convince national leaders that there's a problem. And you, like us, have a, a quite short electoral cycle. And so, you know, something like antibiotic resistance, climate change, uh, pandemic planning needs 20 year commitment. And you can't you can't do that with governments that are just, you know, they've got we, here. We're likely to have an early 2024 election. So, you know, it's, it's what policies will sell in 16 months. You're certainly not going to do, you know, your major push for antibiotic resistance. So it's very difficult. And I've reached the age where um, I'm really reflecting, yeah. I think, on how to sell some of these messages at national level and and you know it shouldn't be this hard yeah and it is it's hard as a a, you know what's called a wild card in disaster planning to sell the opposite view and it's also hard as a woman to sell the sell the sell the response because you know we look hysterical if we're not careful oh my god both both of those reasons suck (laughs) (laughs) Um, but we have we have a phrase here which i'm sure you've heard we have a phrase here, um, you know, NIMBY, not in my yeah. backyard. We have yeah. a phrase here, NIMTO, not in yeah. my term of office. Yeah, you know? that's a, I'm stealing and, that. That's brilliant. And, and, that's exactly the problem we have here. Yeah, oh, I love it. It's all, it's all yours. <laughs> Thank and we you. saw it here. We have, a three year, we have a three-year election cycle, which is... Crikey, you get nothing done in please that. Please do. Um, <laughs> we, ha- we have a three-year election cycle, which is ridiculous yeah and so yeah. you saw we had an election on the 21st of may you saw people dropping policy on you know the the first the the first of april you know they they, they were seeing like what can get them over the line in six weeks yeah not in six years yeah not in 16 years no, no, you know no, no. and it's it's so so short-sighted yeah. and Absolute. it's Same extraordinarily here. difficult what makes us as humans so shit at assessing risk lucy <laughs> Oh, again, you know, this is the, this is my beautiful denouement to the, the end of the chapter, the fear. You know, I, I think one of the things that I do think our ancestors would have would have sort of looked at us slightly, you know, kind of mystified is the idea that bad things don't happen. You know, I think that's a very kind of, you know, certainly an English privilege and only to a certain sector of the population. You know, we live in a terribly racialized, marginalized, in, in unequal population here. 
and we often do some of our worst things to our you know those with the least resources to cope with it so that 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 isn't a population that needs to be told that you know uh, you, you're not planning for the worst because really what we see there is the disasters that we inflict on them are just a further crisis in an already um you know kind of oppressive uh, uh, state of affairs but there was certainly a swathe and it, and it really kind of proved our theory during the pandemic that um couldn't couldn't make sense although i don't think any of us could make sense of the risk uh, you know, material that was coming out of the government and then couldn't calibrate, again, through no fault of their own, like what they needed to do with it. And that that was, that was the pandemic really has been the sum of all of our fears around how people uh, manage <laughs> risk um, and understand risk. And also, uh, I think we thought we were doing it, you know, for the greater good, but actually the amount of, um, the amount of selfish kind of, focus on one's own survival coupled with some amazing community resilience and, and you know that, that's the that's the sort of the two worlds I live in sometimes I see terrible things sometimes I see good things the way I keep going is to focus on the good things so you saw amazing uh you know kind of care and community resilience coupled with complete unawareness that you know people were like stay in get your food delivered <laughs> by a person who's delivering your food you know we completely forgot a whole swathe of our population and that just blew my mind really so I've actually uh, one of the things I'm really proud of for next year is an anthology of poems and scripts and diaries of of just how unequal uh the pandemic proved the United Kingdom to be which which is is well known to disaster. Oh, it happened planners. here as well. It was like I'm a, I, yeah, I'm a former roadie, uh, and so I actually got a roll on my. It's like you never, I never, still never travel without a roll of gaff tape. <laughs> all right, still always take a roll of I gaff tape with me. About and that. Good. <laughs> the way I used to describe it was that. Where's his gaff? Where's I'm a disaster planner. <laughs> yeah. There's yeah. going to be a moment where we need to tape something. And if we yeah. don't have cloth back tape, we're fucked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all right. Ginsburg's here. Um, what, what I, the way I felt the pandemic, certainly in this country, it just bits of the way our society was functioning were kind of all held together by gaff. All right. There yeah, was the part yeah. where the social services that the government provided were here. Then there was the people that were here. And then there was like, well, we're just going to, it's going to stretch. Yeah, oh, it works fine. No problem. Everything's fine. <laughs> and then when the pandemic hit, boom, all that, all that gaff got pulled away and then things just stopped connecting, you know, and that really, really showed the, the cracks. You mentioned something earlier and, and similarly in the pandemic, you know, I didn't, Oh, maybe I didn't look, but I certainly didn't see um, fights over toilet paper in Japan. Uh, so I'm wondering, in your experience as a, someone who's in disaster preparation and certainly, you know, disaster recovery and how to, you know, help a community after that, what, is, what have you noticed between individualistic societies like the one we live in in Australia and in the UK and in America um, versus communal societies or um yeah, some, somewhere like somewhere like Japan, where it's or, or parts of Africa, where it's like you know, I am because we are. I think the word is Mbutu, I think. Um, what have you noticed about how disaster response, uh, particularly from the communities before and after, changes? Yeah, and there's, I mean, there's a huge amount to learn as as we do we do try to do from communities that are much more perhaps you know like Japan is much more um, uh, comfortable with with drilling and preparing for emergency management. 
I mean, one of the things, and as I keep saying, you know, it gives me my smiles, is that humans are great and people are great. And, you know, I have got through this pandemic only prouder, actually, of my of, of my operational people, my country, not my leaders, but my country I'm very, very proud of. Because there were some things where I do, you know, I say in my book, I like challenge, I like rebellion, I like dissent, you know, don't, I don't want to necessarily can see compliance all of the time. I'm very, people thought that I must be devastated that immediately, you know, there was a lot of challenge on social media to government policies. You know, I, I'm proud of living in a nation that's able to do that. I also think, you know, we, we explored a lot my, my original path into disaster. And that comes from, a, you know, there's a healthy scepticism to the message that you're being given by the state. And yes, I think we saw some stockpiling of loo roll. But what we also saw was loo roll is the first thing to go in a supply chain. It takes up huge amounts in, in a lorry. So supermarkets didn't have enough uh, loo roll to sell. And they, they focused on what were considered more priority goods. And, and you know, one of my suspicions, and I do go there in, in, in When the Dust Settles, is by the time we got certainly to the UK in 2019-20, we were a country with, we'd slightly lost our relationship with the truth. And we were using a lot of behavioural insight to tell people how to respond in emergencies. And my suspicion is, you know, there's no real evidence that we saw huge amounts of panic buying. What we saw was probably, oh my goodness, somebody else has got a 16 pack of blue roll in the, in the trolley, I'll do the same. So we saw actually what looks like collective behavior. And then the second thing that we saw was this, and we always knew this would happen. We had a lot of data from other disasters that this would happen. A lot of the country are in some way engaged in disaster response. So health workers, funeral directors, emergency planners, police, fire, ambulance. And it was obvious in sort of end of Feb, early March that something was emerging. So if you were married to a contingency planner, you'd go and stock up, which was exactly what we'd seen post-hurricane and post-tornadoes, you know, like the spouses of police workers going out and stocking up because word was, this is bad. And I think there's a, the, you know, there was a, a scandal where, uh, you know, sort of American senator's wife had been briefing the other senators to go shopping. This is what you do. This is good preparedness. So I felt very sorry, actually, for British and American and Australian publics at that point. We told them to prepare. We told them to get ready. And then when they did, we accused them of panic buying. So this is where this is where I'm what's called the wild card. And I've just actually been formally voted uh, a wild card mm. in the UK Health Service, <laughs> which was a, a very big honour bestowed on me by the Health Service awesome. Journal, which was she asks difficult questions of policymakers. So, it's, you know, I'm hoping there's a badge and it's official. But one of the things mm. is I was quite, I was quite, quite distressed by some of the, you know, the hounding of how the public were behaving. And, you know, one of my, you know, one of my dearest friends is an Australian nurse and we were we were keeping in touch throughout and you you saw exactly what we saw just amazing people keeping going uh eye on a horizon let's get our children through um it wasn't always possible with some of the policies but I got I got huge comfort from that so yeah I I I, I learn a lot from other places but I yeah. also take huge amounts from our own country's resilience during these times you mentioned the the um, you know turn, turning against the people, turning like pointing fingers at those who've you know grabbed all the toilet paper they can, even though we told them prepare. <laughs> um, there's a I think the first well, we we're talking about the pandemic, but this is only just a, as a way to frame the kind of I guess the psychology or you know the next question I want to ask you is um, I think that like the first weekend when it was like this is a pandemic, there were 13,000 people on Bondi Beach yeah. and there was all these photos going, how dare you, you know, people are going to die and you just think you just want to be out in the sun. And um, 
I had a guest on my podcast, Briggs, this amazing guy, and he said 13,000 people didn't go to the beach because it, out of spite. They went to the beach because it wasn't communicated to them clearly enough and there wasn't enough leadership to say, this is why we need you to stay home. So in your work, where does coaching leaders in communication come in? Oh, that's a huge po- oh, that's a huge point and a huge part of it. And a source of huge sadness, you know. I every day work with amazing crisis leaders and amazing, you know, people going above and beyond that people just don't see, you know, call it the bricolage, the hidden work of disaster planning. And it frustrates me intensely that they should be as brilliant as they are. And people on, you know, massive salaries and massive status in society do not give the, the, the same value to the skills that they show. And one of the things we have, again, it comes back to your not in my term of office, is how they prioritise their training. So, you know, one of the contrasts I see now to when I started in the early 2000s is, you know, the first thing you would do with a new cabinet and a new minister and a new prime minister was that they would go on um, training. And they would train how to do the cabinet office briefing room and they would train how to do comms. And also, I think you would agree that there is no one true science, but you would you would perhaps open up the science, science and technical briefings to the whole houses of parliament. You know, th- th- those were the sorts of things you would do. And now... Uh, you know, we've got rail strikes here and they were sort of, you know, the ministers were boasting about how many cabinet office briefing room meetings, which are the way we handle crisis and disaster, would be um, would be activated. And it just feels like it's all a, a sort of political tool. Um, the other thing that I, I, I'd written a lot about was, was that ultimately disasters are about people and compassion and what humans need. And, you know, I haven't had access to the very top level briefings of January, February, March 2020. But were our leaders spending enough time on what it's going to feel like to be, say, a parent trying to get children through this? Did they spend enough time on making sure that we could still get to the people at end of life in a hospital? Did they make enough time to think about maybe we can't hold funerals, but what else will we do? And, you know, both in the UK and Australia, the records will show that they didn't. So you know, the types of training and also the time for the training are really important. And, and, you know, will we get better now? I really hope so. I mean, you've just had a a quite fundamental shift of of government in Australia. You'd like to think that the first days in office, they would ask to see the risk register. They would ask to know when the training's in their diary Mm. for a major incident, you know, something on the scale of, you know, the Japanese uh, tsunami and, uh, you know, the triple disasters, things that throw in, um, you know, other other threats and hazards. When are they being trained? And, you know, one thing that's frustrated me hugely yeah. at some of the inquiries we've got going on at the moment is there's been no focus on, could you tell me, Minister, when you were trained in strategic leadership for disaster? We haven't asked that, for example, into the in the Grenfell fire, mm. which killed at least 72 people. We haven't asked that question of our ministers. But my, my thinking and my understanding is they were so yeah. new in office, they won't have been trained. So let's let's say, you know, you've got, and you did mention there's been a fundamental ideological shift in Australian politics, which is uh, I think we're all still, still having our exhale sigh, <laughs> you know, a month <laughs> later. We still can't believe it happened. In your experience, what communication, what messaging from leaders um, is is received well and, and, and helps victims of a disaster take those next steps? What works for people who have been affected by disasters? What words work from a leader? 
and the really difficult thing is it's very hard to do that in the heat of the moment you know so the best obviously as we were just saying you know the best thing to do is to get to them before and plan and train and work with them and challenge them one of the hardest things about my life has been going in to challenge a message that leaders are putting out at the at the time and actually I've learned it's probably incredibly unhelpful and I just have to let it play out because there's just it that's you know that's a completely febrile time so the best the best scenario there is that I've had some time with them before the incident um and they absolutely believe you, you you get this sort of you know zealous commitment that what they're doing is the right thing so your bondi beach example is really interesting you know how to get the sweet spot in a in a leadership message about you know get in stay in people are dying versus you can go to the beach if you want to you know as a spectrum the problem that everybody did here in the uk in the early few months was the get in stay in do you really want to be responsible for killing your grandma and in disaster recovery planning, that was that was almost as harmful as the other end of the spectrum, probably as harmful if I was being really honest. They never found the middle ground, which is we would like you to stay in, this is why, and a sort of calm, measured, with with perhaps a little bit of uncertainty, but you know, for us, stay in, not loading in loads of fear and not loading in loads of guilt. Because what the disaster research had shown was that that would have a very long-term effect on, on society and recovery. And you see these massive polarizations, which we're certainly living through, um, you know, accusing people who perhaps kept their business open once they were allowed to, or accusing people who campaigned like I did to reopen safe spaces for children as being very selfish in that you know you, you didn't care about the virus and of course we cared about the virus and the virus you know was was a was a terrible threat but we also as disaster planners had this broad spectrum of where where the risk would go and that there were other things that are equally harmful really to to a recovering community and this was lessons that we learned from things like environmental contamination so in flooding, for example, mm. we saw local authorities really, really kind of overhype the risk of E. coli from the flood water, which is definitely a risk. But it meant that people then were so sort of turned against their, their objects in their own home that once the flood water had receded, they would throw out their passports and their documents and things that could be wiped clean. And, you know, the, the fear of contamination and disease, it really lingers and it's very hard to row mm. back on. So what I would ideally do is get to, to leaders before the incident and you can work through this. And you know, I'm doing, doing one in two days. You know, we're spending a day with senior leaders and we'll play scenarios. And they're sceptical. They'll look at you and think, no, that, that won't be a problem. But they, uh, they, it gives them certainly gives them pause for thought. And I think one of the things with, with when the dust settles is people have, have come to me and said, my boss has read it now. And he or she is much happier mm. letting me run with some of my challenges to some of their messaging. And, and, and that's, that's something I could only have dreamed of that I'd initiate. So I'm really pleased with that. So, yeah, it's very difficult um, to get the, get, get the balance right. And also to tell a leader that they're doing too much. Yeah. Um, they're perhaps uh, over-promising. Yeah. Uh, they're running support services 24 hours a day. These kind of things. One campaign I'm really proud of recently with Ukraine is I went well above the parapet and reminded our country of a lesson that it already knew, which is the best type of donation in disaster is cash, not stuff. And I went, I went really loud and really prominent. And within 24 hours, I got a text message from a friend who works with the London mayor and said, there's a press statement going out 
you know, donations of money, not donations of stuff. So sometimes you can you can correct the message, but it's very hard. Why after a disaster, cash not stuff? Why? With few exceptions, and the can of, you know, I I'm, <laughs> I got accused of being a fence sitter the other day, and, and I'll take that accusation. There are times when I'll 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 deviate from my own event, you know, own advice. For example, you know, if somebody says we really need crutches after uh, uh, an incident that's caused a lot of broken legs, I'll let a donation of crutches. You know, somebody's made the case for that. Apparently, everybody uh, stockpiles crutches at home. But um, generally, what we find, and the, you know, uh, huge amounts again of disaster research. Remember, it's like a field of of scholarly, uh, ethnographic, observational, qualitative studies. Is that um, uh, stuff is the secondary disaster? So uh, you know, out of date medical goods, uh, sending nice warm jumpers as we did from here to uh, the tsunami in 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 the Indian Ocean. It, it, we basically uh, just send rubbish and uh, it becomes the second disaster. It sits mm. in containers and moulders. Unless there is a very specific requirement, as I say, that's very clearly evident, the best thing you can do, do is donate to an organised charity. And I was I was really pleased here with mm. Ukraine. We, we, moved, we moved swiftly. It was looking perilous. So, yeah, with few exceptions, my hashtag is cash not stuff. I love it. But sp- speaking of stuff, though, we have wild associations and, and, and wild emotional attachments to stuff. My, yeah. my roll of gaff, my phone, <laughs> my, a photo of my, my wedding day, my, you know, my kids' toys, you know, my, yeah. my, my eldest's you know, makeup mirror, like these things. Um, what, what have you learned about you know, going back to this place that is your home, your safe place, your sanctuary, and seeing little things that might be a toothbrush that then just sets you in this just psychological path of devastation that is so hard to recover from. How do you help people go through that part? Oh, gosh. It, I think, you know, that's been one of the most humbling uh, parts of my my life and my work, really. It, you know, it's what Kai Erickson, the disaster sociologist, calls the loss of the furniture of self. So it is everything that makes us up. And one of the the proudest chapters in When the Dust Settles is about flooding. And I think it's been a really unifying thing between me and my brethren in Australia and New Zealand and, and the US is that you flood and we flood and the experience is very similar. So I could find you, you know, right now, 25 uh, mothers who've told me the same story from Hull or Doncaster or Durban or, you know, Christchurch after the earthquakes created a sort of liquefaction, a horrible mud that covered everything. Um, and one word I use a lot to describe this is heraith, the Welsh word for, for a lost life, a life that you can't return to. Uh, and even the idea that, that you, you're perhaps living in the same house, but it's lost something. It's lost its sense of safety. And this this was something where, you know, I say what you learn in disaster is not all of these things are neatly framed within traditional concepts of recovery management or so we have you know big firms that will go in and clear this up and also it wasn't neatly framed within mental health you know the person who's going through that is very exhausted there's a malaise there's a sadness so they might be given antidepressants and some cognitive behavioral therapy but actually perhaps even when that garage is cleaned they go in and in their mind's eye all they see is that it's destroyed or something is is changed and so a lot of my work and actually some of my proudest work is about the care and management of personal effects now with homes we see something very different we see a huge sense of of pain and exhaustion 
my other relationship with personal effects is often after things like bombs and air crashes, how we return those to the bereaved and from survivors. Um, they uh, they will perhaps, for example, you know, they'll mount. I've seen artwork made out of the things that they were perhaps wearing on the day that it happened. But with bereaved families, uh, one of my greatest um, achievements, really, that I'm really proud of is that in the UK, we've 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 uh, really built an ethic of care around the return of of personal items to people who've who've lost things in disaster. We don't always apply that to the flooding and the fires, um, but one of the one of the you know one of the things that I will always get in very early on with those strategic leaders is what's happening about the personal effects, and that's one of those examples where, you know, I'm regularly told off. I'm regularly told it's not important. Uh, and I really have to make that case. Is it because when, you know, um, when we lose someone close to us, if, you know, someone then says, oh, and this is the necklace that we retrieved, yeah. we can hold that thing and something in our psychological mechanism goes, ah, oh, all right, the, I'm accepting that this person is gone now because I have this thing and I would only have this thing because that I know that plane crashed and when they went through the wreckage they found this and so therefore she or he was definitely on that on board and there's closure then is that why it feels better that's a huge part of it often with plane and helicopter crashes and things like that there's very and bomb explosions there's very little of the person that we can return and we will try and do viewing and I'm a huge advocate of never censoring what a loved one is allowed to see but um, sometimes there's very little to return, but the, the personal effects will survive in a different way. Often, as you say, jewellery or a debit card is surprisingly indestructible. Uh, we'll be able to get a SIM card off a phone, all of these kinds of things. And they do exactly what you say. There's a confirmation. There's a, right. They were there, which is a huge part of, of, of 9-11, which I write about, where you know up to 40% of people have no biological confirmation, really, that their loved one was involved. Um, I, you know, I have, you know, I know, know of people who only got a partial debit card back. You know, those are the kinds of things. And of course, people do live with, with um, sort of fantasy mm. and story that maybe the person survived. Uh, the year of nine eleven was the year that the movie Castaway had come out before, and people had this idea that maybe people had swum to Staten Island, or maybe they were in a hospital, or they'd got sort of blown out to safety. All of these kind of things. Mm. So the personal mm. effects are hugely confirmatory. There is a, there, I, I think one of the things that I've had a real response to with writing the book is people saying, I never even thought that there was somebody like you who made sure that, you know, the personal effects had gone off to a team to be cared for. And then the families are given choice. That's hugely important to me. The items can be returned as close to the condition that they were in, in the disaster as possible. We don't launder or repair without permission. And people haven't found that grisly or distressing. They've thought, Wow, to know that I live in a world where there's a personal effects contract so that somebody will always take care of them uh, is it's hugely important. You have it written into your transportation codes in Australia. You mirror actual formal statute in America. And, um, and, and, and it's one less thing for the families to have to worry about because what we were seeing in the 1990s, you know, one of the reasons the Americans passed legislation was that a group of families went to see, uh, went to a briefing on the crash and they went to uh, where the wreckage was being examined and they they looked in some skips and they could see, you know, big rubbish skips, they could see the personal effects. 
And that goes right back to my ethos at the start. I, I might be able to understand that disaster has happened, but I will never understand the treatment of families that's that poor. So I will do everything I can mm. to prevent that. You, we've, we touched on the differentiation between using the word when and using the word if. And at the start of your career, you may have been aware. I think the 80s, I think the Montreal thing was happening around CFCs. We had an idea of global warming. We had an idea of ice caps melting. It was kind of this thing. And 92, the Kyoto Protocol shows up and went, oh, yeah, that's far away. I'm recording this. I'm on the, I don't know, 30-something floor of a building 100 metres from the high tide mark and the ground floor of this building is probably a metre and a half above sea level. And that goes to the entire plain behind me all the way to the mountains. And there's a sense of dread that's coming across my body when I think about what this place will look like in 30 or 40 years. What can a community like this, like a vulnerable coastal community, what can a community like this start to think about now, difficult things, what can they start to think about now so that whatever happens, they will still feel at home somewhere. They will still feel like their neighbours are the neighbours. They will still feel, oh, no, I identify culturally with this particular area. You mentioned you live 40 metres, 40 minutes away from Liverpool. I'm sure it feels very different to be there just because of the people that live around you. That's why you choose to live there. So it feels, I grew up in Queensland. This feels completely different to where I live in Sydney, all right? Yeah. That sense of feeling, that sense of place, that sense of belonging is so important. Um, that's a big question, but, like, you know, as far as planning for that, what are some things that we can start to think about now that we might want to put in place? Oh, um, yeah, that's a brilliant question. To make sure question. that it's like, okay, we know. Yeah. that's And, and actually, I mean, a good place to answer it because I've just done a keynote for the University of College London's Institute for Risk and Disaster Reduction. And I was quite feisty in it because I think the majority of presentations that you go to on climate change, particularly in the scholarly environment, are quite future focused. So like, if we don't do this, we will do that. And I was quite struck by it and, and very similar, actually, not knowing you were going to ask, ask me that question. I, I, I started it with the when, not if question. I could see the room being like, well, that's a bit defeatist, Lucy Eastope, <laughs> you know, that you're saying, right, so when this town disappears, when this island, you know, some of the Pacific Islands goes, what do we do? And you could see that because the, the room was great. It was early career researchers. It was it was very, very animated. I could see, you know, I was on rocky ground because that's that's a bit defeatist. But actually, when you when you talk in the language of disaster planning, which is very affirmative, very certain, this will happen. This tower block will burn down. This will be under sea level. What next? And um, I'd, I'd been watching a news report here for, for a community that was planning to move its village from the coastal edge here in the UK, sort of 10 metres backwards, so that the village and the community and what we call the kind of lifescapes of the community would endure. It would just be in a slightly different place. And this was a big discussion we had, for example, with the, with the Grenfell fire was one of the early things I mooted. And maybe I'm pleased that I never got listened to because I'd now be responsible for the complete destruction of Her Majesty's grass. But one of the things that I suggested was, you know, rather than spread the 200 families that needed homes across London, what about if we built an enormous, very, very nice lodge park that we'd seen done in New Zealand or in, in America? W would that work? And it was completely <laughs> poo-pooed. And as I say, maybe that was the right thing. But the idea of the protected lifescape 
you know, Canterbury and Christchurch in New Zealand are a huge example of what happens when you say that place no longer exists, you know, for the, the, the geological reasons, the seismic reasons, some places are now inaccessible. You don't get to take that pain away. You know, I speak to wonderful colleagues in Christchurch and, and at the 10-year point, the 11-year point, it's still absolutely incredibly painful. And the hiraith, the Welsh word, that loss of the life before hurts more than ever. Um, so one of the things I said in the presentation is climate adaptation will all be about hiraith. And you'll be expected to just sort of power through that. Oh, I'm very sorry, that island doesn't exist anymore. That, that you know, my children, my children caught a little bit of Waterworld the other day, that well-known blockbuster with Kevin Costner. And my little one said, oh, oh, is this about climate change? You know, she thought it was a documentary. She got so used to kind of, you know, the oh, David wow. Attenborough blue planet kind of discussion she's like oh that is that 2035 and my husband and I were like well crikey yes I suppose it is and when she went when she went to bed that night she said to me how long before you have to swim down to the town and yeah that's I think one of the things I would like us to shift towards is not an acceptance that there's nothing we can do I get that but an acceptance of of the use of when and preparing communities for for rapid change. The, on the same day as I did my presentation, there was, you know, it, it's always a privilege. I was listening to some um, researchers uh, from, from Uganda. And that was, you know, they are um, quite rightly pointing out, you know, some of this is very Western privilege to sit here and kind of debate it. They are living with starvation and mm. they are living with um, massive changes climatically. And so I, it, you know, one of the things I think many of us in the disaster management world are saying, what, what skills do we have that can be immediately applied to this debate? And the biggest one is, is talking as when, not if. Because, yes, there's the days after the thing, there's the weeks after the thing, there's the months after the thing, and then there's the years after the thing, you know, and eventually that'll be a thing that happened, you know. Um, but the idea of lifescape, that's a fascinating, a fascinating thing. You know, keeping a community together is one of the things that, that social cohesion is one of the things that keeps our, you know, keeps our society as it is. It keeps that that balance there, and it's so vitally important. I mean, we, you know, we've seen what happens when things fall to bits. We, nobody wants that. Thankfully, thankfully, it's all happening in slow motion in some parts of the world. Um, my wife, you mentioned uh, the Pacific Islands. My wife's from Fiji, and I did a couple of years in a row working over there. And boy, uh, you see villages getting, you know, parts of villages that don't exist anymore. Like it's happening. If when it's happening in your day, you're like, all right. I guess we'll move your house over there, but uh, we can at least all stay together. But here, it's like that's oh, far away. Don't worry about it. But 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 it isn't. And you know, where there's so much resistance against it because you know property values are important. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And and oh. I think also you're you know one of the things I called out in this presentation was. Uh, it's not. It's, we've learned a lot from the pandemic about how you convey risks. It's not always clear what to do. Your your personal mm. adaptations can feel very, you know, very meaningless. We've had big scandals here where people have been diligently recycling, and then they've just found out it's actually being burnt as landfill. You know, people are desperately mm. trying to make ethical choices about every stage of their life and sustainable choices about every stage of their life, but the science isn't clear. So, in my world, I, I deal a lot with with uh, death planning. We, you know, I'm a mass fatality planner as part of the disaster work, and I've just come back from a, a very inspiring burials and cremations conference which was entirely focused 
focused on environmental change. And they say that, you know, some of the family members now will often be very focused on sustainability, you know, what what uh, emissions and what changes can they make. But these can feel quite small when you look at, say, you know, the amount of, in, you know, big industrial pollutants going on. So I think one of the difficulties is, is, is how to make difference. And I, I've really enjoyed the sort of change we've seen in the media in the last couple of years about really, real meaningful changes we can make. And then I think the other thing is calling out the hypocrisy. You know, climate change activists who fly back and forth to conferences all around the world is really rankling now, I think. And that's always been been the sort of hypocrisy of some of the, you know, the global movements. The, the, the workers are noticing this while they're being lectured from very luxury environments on, on climate change. So we've got to find a way to, to equal uh, the discussion, I think, as well. That was another big issue for me. It is hard, but, you know, these, these things and, you know, it's tough to have those kind of conversations with, with your kids, um, no doubt. You know, I'm sure even you would have a hard time answering, answering that oh, question yeah. uh, to a little yeah. one. Um, what are some ways that you've learned that is, you know, uh, can be effective when communicating to kids around um, a disaster, the when, but also... If something bad has happened, then a disaster could be a car crash that, you know, you lose half your family. And what have you learned lessons about, you know, communicating to children um, about about things like this? Personally, what I always am very motivated by, and I deliberately started when the dust settles with my own child activism, you know, being 11 and realising that the state has got this very wrong. There's a wonderful group that meets in North Kensington uh, called the Futurehood Ch uh, Children, which are aged 5 to 11. And we, we run seminars and they ask questions and we are careful sometimes. You know, that, you know, you end on a hopeful note, you calibrate what the children can cope with, but you answer their questions. And so that's really important to me is seeing them as, as, as equal citizens. It is difficult. You know, my, my, my little one particularly is, is very interested in the world and, it, you don't want to you don't want to turn that into fear you know certainly the, the climate change conversations you can see her being very worried you know will we drown where will the water come and so um you know one of the things is is definitely a balance and one thing i always say is that disaster planners live differently you know we we live and love and laugh differently we're not hedonistic we tend to you know we do have a pension fund but we also know that today is 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 there's no guarantee of tomorrow we live as if life is very fragile. So my children never go off to school without me telling them how much I love them. We don't go off on a fight. You, you sense the fragility of life very differently. And also there's a lightheartedness in that. They, you know, I think it's really important that, you know, to em embrace embrace the day. And I, I genuinely believe that. I know it sounds trite, but it's it's really important to me. The big thing I found with the pandemic was to get them to look outwards. Uh, you know, the UK can be quite a selfish, privileged nation again. You know, we can look in on ourselves. How is this affecting me? And I said to them, my goodness, you know, there's little people than you. There's babies. We've got to get through this. There's people who need help around the corner. And they had jobs all through the pandemic. And so looking outwards and altruism and, you know, thinking about getting getting us through this. And we live in a multi-generational family, you know, lots of grandparents are very, very close by. That was one of the reasons we moved. So it's always, you know, how do we get how do we get people through this? And that that that's been a real motivator to them. I guess what what you're saying is almost it's almost quite quite 
I dare say Buddhist in a way, just accepting that life is pain, accepting that life is suffering, accepting that it's a when, not an if, that everyone you know will die and everything you love will, will turn to rubble or dust or ash or, or, or you know mud. Once you're in acceptance of that, you're free to go, well, I better have fun now. <laughs> I know, I don't want to be responsible for a wave of total hedonism across Australia, but I think there is a, a spiritual, theological aspect to disaster planning, which is, you know, and, you know, some of my greatest mentors are in things like mortuary management and funeral directing and, and, and also, you know, theologians is that, you know, it doesn't also, it doesn't stop us focusing on making sure we, we build the best future. You know, there is a balance here and I'm very, very comfortable with that. But sometimes I also say, uh, take comfort in the fact that there are disaster planners and climate scientists and lots of people doing great work and you make sure you're doing your bit but also you know live live for today i think this this massive worry that i see um it, it leads to a very stultifying very paralyzing fear and anxiety mm. one of the things that i've been really touched by with the response to the book is is that people said Oh, phew, of course, of course, I never thought about it, but of course, a, you know, a society would have disaster planners. That makes me feel so much better. Yeah, and our government, I think, to get itself out of various holes and started to sell the idea of things as being unprecedented. <laughs> it's something I really call out on Twitter. If a minister oh, ever uses unprecedented, expect a Lucy Pylon. These things are planned for. Yeah. The other thing, again, in your in your not in my term of office, we we started to try and sell the idea to the public that you know vote for me, there'll be no death. So one of the things I'm raising big questions about is what is life for and, and how does it end? Yeah. You know, and then there's been some lovely reviews of the book that have said, you know, these are big theological questions here. What are we, what are we here for, and what were we trying to prevent? And that some some things you know come with come with deaths. We had a big debate here recently because our minister said, well, we might get power outages, but we're completely on top of it and completely in control, you know, because we've got major issues with power in the country at the moment. Don't worry about it. And actually, our publicly available National Risk Register sets the likelihood of power outages as very high. And with a predicted death toll from things like cold in your own home of a thousand people. So let's be honest, it's there and, you know, I can download it right now. It's not, a, it's not a private document. Why can't we say to the public, these are the things we would like you to do to get ready for that. Look after thy neighbour, you know, be ready for community warming spaces. Mm. Uh, we'll, we'll go through all this, by the way, while you're having Christmas on the beach. <laughs> so it's all very difficult. You know, if we have a tough winter, these are the things I want you to do. Mm. That's good preparedness. And so there's a, there's a strange mix, I think, of spirituality meets jolly good sense. And that's what disaster planning is all about. If there was a church of spirituality <laughs> that meets, meets jolly good sense, I think I would go every week because <laughs> the songs would also be pretty good. Um, the plantums. But I think, I think <laughs> disaster planning. Yeah, the plantums. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Just a moment away from Lucy Eastape. We'll get right back to her in just a shake. I do need to play some more ads here to pay the people who help me make this show every week because they're brilliant. If you want an ad-free version of the show, you can absolutely get one because by supporting this show, you're supporting 
independent digital content, uh, which is free of editorial control or, you know, advertisers that say what you can or can't do or what you can and can't say. I'd like to think that over the last nine and a bit years of making this show that I've been able to just pretty much say whatever it is I want to say, which is really nice. You know, obviously within legal reason, <laughs> I'm not going to go, I don't want to go to court, neither do you. If you want an ad-free version of this show, it's super easy to find. You just go to patreon.com slash osher, O-S-H-E-R. And you can get ad-free versions of this show. There's also full video episodes on the way. Uh, there's a few up there already. There's more to come. And it really, really helps. If that's beyond you, if, if the extra couple bucks a month is is out of your range, that's fine. You can really support the show just by sharing it, just by, you know, letting someone else know. Text them, email them, tell somebody, share this episode with somebody who might have been through something or who's, you know, worried about something. And that really, really helps us because people subscribe and unsubscribe all the time. So it really, really helps. Like, share, subscribe, rate the show whatever you can. It really, really helps. Do that for all of your favorite podcasts because it really, really helps those independent podcasters keep the shows on the road. You may hear some ads. You may not hear some ads depending on where you're listening and how you're listening, but we'll be right back with some more of Lucy East Hope. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I was explaining to Wolfie, we were, because we're in this high rise building, right? And I took Wolfgang, he's nearly three, and we, it's very exciting because we take, we don't take the bins out, we go to the chute and we put the bin in the chute and then we listen as it goes 30 something floors all the way. Boom, there it is. Yeah. Super exciting. And he said, What's that? I said, Well, that's the fire escape. Mm. What's that? Oh, he said, Pointed at the sign. What's that? It's a picture of someone running through a door. I yeah. said, That's fire escape. I said, what do you mean? And I opened the door and I said, there's some stairs. Yeah. I said, the lift have never worked. If the, yeah. if the lift stops working, we go down the stairs. That's disaster planning. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. I'm comfortable to live way above where any fire engine can either douse a flame or, ex- or, or evacuate me because there's a set of stairs over there. Yeah. Because unfortunately, we learned a very, very hard way. You've got to make sure there's a set of stairs yeah. with positive air pressure inside yeah. it that everyone can get out of the yeah. building. And just if you scale that to, okay, so this beautiful kind of uh, almost kind of repurposed lagoon, which is what the Gold Coast is, they just shoved a bunch of sand in it and made canals. This won't be here. Okay, so how can we put the, what's the fire escape for this bit? Let's just put that bit in there and then we can all just be, cool, well, we know what's going to happen and we know yeah. what to do if it does. Yeah. Cool, carry on. Yeah. 
And that's kind of really it, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And and I, you know, I'm constantly learning. And there's a phrase that my colleagues use for me that Lucy's head is full of bees. <laughs> I'm constantly like, wow, that's so interesting. And I see kind of parallels that nobody else would see. Although I've realized now, sort of living with my dad, that he sees them all the time. And they are incredibly tangential. But one of the things that I learn a lot from actually is is I read and learn constantly from things like end of life and palliative care about the delivery of difficult messages. And, uh, you know, because I go to these amazing conferences, you learn things like people with uh, who've been discharged to things like palliative care and hospice care who are given the plan of how they will be looked after and what their pain management will be and how often their wonderful nurses will come in, live longer and happier in the period that they are um, they are dying in with the plan. And that was like, wow. <laughs> and, yeah, that was a real, like, beautiful moment, I think, for me. And I think also the, you know, this week we've had major rail strikes here and people were being interviewed saying, well, they told us they were going to happen. The pandemic helped us to think about our own resilience and working from home. We were ready for them. And, uh, you know, obviously we were sort of engaged with listening about the strikes, but all the emergency planners were messaging each other going, wow, you know, the public, when given the information that they need and a set of fire escapes and these are where you go for this. And what the panic research suggests, and we, you know, we hate the word panic in emergency planning because good, you know, the, you don't panic unless the state does something to make you panic. What the research says is that you know, crowds, for example, will behave very responsibly. They'll look after each other unless you do something to change. You know, you, you take people in, and then all of a sudden block off all the exits. Then you create a problem with the dynamics. So a lot of a lot of what we can do is about sensible information. I get so many requests on Twitter for tell me what's in a family, you know, emergency grab bag. You know, the the, the torches. We yeah. we've got hurricane lamps here that don't. You know, this will sound so basic to you guys, but because Australia is often very much ahead, but we have non you know non power requiring um, hurricane lamps, and we have it. We've after a power cut earlier this year, we have an off-grid generator and all those sorts of things. But just, you know, making it fun. One of the things that the, the conference told me yesterday, which I found fascinating, was that more than ever, they're finding that families, when they do lose a loved one, are coming into the uh, funeral directing process with a really clear set of what the person wanted. And the funeral director's theory is that during the pandemic, you know, those slightly more worrying nights, we, you know, we topped up our glass and we did talk about what you might like mm. if you die. Now, again, that's a symptom of a very privileged nation. You know, I had African colleagues ringing me at the start of the pandemic saying, <laughs> you know, you guys are really going to get your test now because we've added this to a list of things that might kill us. And you yeah. guys are like, what? You mean that life ends in death? This is a, this is a shock. <laughs> so I think, you know, it was a really, yeah. I, love getting, I love getting validation of what we think we're seeing anecdotally through studies. And, you know, the funeral directing world <laughs> saying people are coming in having had the big conversations during the pandemic. And I was like, well, that is interesting. And let's, let's, you know, what, what, what circumstances do we need? You know, and we, like, like Australia, we have many different religions now. We don't have a huge relationship between religion and politics and policy. So we've become very secular. And one of the big issues in the pandemic was there was nobody having the, the conversations with the public about what this meant to you emotionally and spiritually. It was all very scientifically driven and very procedural. And I love the idea that maybe yeah. coming out of this, we'll have some bigger conversations. My brain does come up sometimes with slogans. Um, and it, this one's got a lot of P's in it. But the, the pathway out of panic is a plan. 
once people know what's going on, everyone just chills right out. They go, well, that's okay, I know what to do. You know, but if no one's saying this is what you do, people panic and that's when dangerous, dangerous decisions get made. Um, the other thing that really struck me is that in a previous job I was um, – I worked in music television and we would be on stage in front of sometimes thousands of people. I think I think the biggest one I ever did was 80,000 people and I've got a mic. And, you know, we've got bands and it's all very exciting and um, this is at a time uh, in our musical history where there was a lot of jumping off stages and things like that. And so if you, you know, I'd already seen this crowd, seen crowd crushes and I'd been into crowd crush and, I'd, you know, I was really aware of this. I remember my director telling me, he said, you've got the mic, so just be careful. I said, why is that? He goes, they'll do whatever you tell them to do, all right? So if you tell them to dance and look after each other, they'll dance and look after each other. If you tell them to riot, they'll riot. <laughs> people just need permission to behave. Yeah. That's all people need is permission to behave. And if you combine those two things, it makes me wonder, Lucy, is there a point, like is there is there a place in our community for not the prime minister, not the president, but this is the person who's going to be the one that we look to when things are bad, they are non-partisan, so they are just a person. They don't represent any side of politics, but they are the mum or the dad in the front seat that says, it's going to be cool, kids. We're just going to go over this bumpy, rocky road for a little bit, and then we'll be sweet. Just roll your windows up because they're going to get a bit dusty. Like, is there a place for that? Oh, yes, there is. And I think, you know, I think probably at one point it probably was provided by organized religion. But, you know, I think there definitely is, there definitely is a place for that. Um, we're always interested in what we call crisis communications about who's best to deliver the message. You know, we went through a stage of the fire service uh, studies were showing were being the most trusted of the three agencies. But then you would see that, say, with migrant communities who perhaps recently fled civil war, the fire service uniform looked like a military uniform. So there was always, re you know, this is a the, the thing about disaster management is it's a great big net over about 400 different types of social and psychological research. So crisis communication and who delivers it best is this whole field. Um, mm. I actually think it's something I'm very mindful of because I think what what people have done is in discovering when the dust settles and discovering the disaster planning community, it really struck me that people were desperate for somebody to say this is going to be okay. But also this isn't going to be okay. So later on today, I'm giving a presentation about uh, a, a resettlement scheme we've been doing here for Ukraine refugees. And what the disaster recovery research shows is that the goodwill lasts about eight weeks, which is what's happened. And the billeting scheme that we've used, so people having a back bedroom in people's houses, I had predicted would break down in about eight to 10 wow. weeks. Now, in, in my old life pre-Twitter, I would have said all that behind ministerial closed doors and never never been able to show that I was, you know, I was accurate. And now I tweeted. So eight to 10 weeks ago, I tweeted, this scheme isn't going to work. This is why. But I think one of the things about listening to people like me, like with the cash not stuff, is people go, oh, yeah, OK, that makes sense. Now, the difficulty at the early start of the pandemic was there was no plan for a coronavirus that showed, and we did plan for it, there was no plan that showed it would be an eight to 10 week thing. There was a plan that showed it was three, possibly more years of initial quite terrible disruption unless there was a vaccine. And really, this would do an awful lot of damage globally to things like economic supply chain. And in the very early days, there was discussion about maybe we could do some broadcast television around that. And maybe there could even be like, hey, there's disaster recovery. These are the things that we think about the pandemic. And there was talk about, you know, going out on our 7 p.m. like magazine shows. And the government came back and said, that's too depressing. People mm. can't cope with that. 
So that will always be the challenge in disaster recovery. Um, we are when when the disasters happen suddenly we are like you know we are like lantern bearers is the phrase that I use the New Zealanders have some wonderful guidance it's the first endnote reference in when the dust settles called leading in recovery companion through the chaos and they they emerged um, they merged New Zealand Red Cross a hundred years really of disaster recovery guidance plus all of their own very painful learning from the two earthquakes in 2010 2011 of course many other aftershocks into this one document which was like this is painful this is an endurance event this is incredibly long and what we find is people who are going through disaster aftermath go wow that's everything I felt but it's incredibly hard again as we've said all the way through today to sell it in advance that these are the things you need to do but I would say that's where I'm going to spend the rest of my career is sort of you know there's a there's a there's a there's a a strength in being ready Hmm. part of your job has taken you to a to places where you are you're in a room with tens, twenties, if not hundreds of of victims of a, a disaster. Some of them may be uh, full humans. Some of them may be, let's be honest, after a particular like a plane crash or, or something, parts of humans. How do you go from being the effective person that you are there doing your job, doing the best you can, trying to be of as much service to the families of those victims to then in your car, on the way home, and then, Mom, what's for dinner? Like, how how do you how do you get there, and how do you look after yourself? Um, you know, there's there's plenty of textbooks that sort of set out this is how you do it. But I wanted people to see a different side of this that you're constantly calibrating. You're getting it wrong. I got it wrong even this week because I'd been uh, I'd been I'd been away for work all of last week, and I was quite. I was quite punchy when I came home, you know, I'm more directional when I come home and that's not going to work in your own kitchen. So you're constantly evaluating, you know, there's no, you know, you get to see a lot of my mistakes. One of my big mistakes in family life is I sort of try and rush people, I think, to a place where it's going to be okay quicker than they're they're ready to. And I really explore that in the book. So I think one thing I would, you know, I, I, I would say, and as I said, I've just come back from, from a big conference of funeral directors. They completely got where I was coming from when I say in the book, um, you know, I've always thought of the dead body, however damaged, you know, I'm talking very, very small pieces sometimes, however damaged as my kin. I've never, it doesn't revolt me or doesn't terrify me. And I hadn't really expected that to be a controversial line, but it has been a line that people have really questioned. Again, I think it comes from particularly in Western nations, the sequestering of the dead body. I find when I'm with friends in the agricultural community who've perhaps seen terrible accidents or they obviously deal with with life and death cycles all the time, are more comfortable with some of the, you know, some of the things I've obviously seen. Um, But this is also, you know, a world where we just don't see that level of of destruction. We don't even really see illness at its most grim often. Often that's all moved behind closed doors. So I think uh, that's really interested me that people have been particularly sort of surprised by that. The other thing I think is that people are looking for me to be traumatized. You know, when I'm in my book signing keys, mm. people, you can tell people like, you know, is she drunk right now? Like, how is she coping with this? And what I've used, you know, all the way through, I was very lucky. I think that my career, I had a number of American mentors and you would just access psychological support. And I have very good trauma debriefing, but also it's a spectrum of support. So it starts with welfare and resources and taking time out and recognising your body and recognising yourself. 
I've made a big thing in in a lot of the media that I've done recently about the role of the plantham, as we mentioned, which is the music that gets a lot of us through. And that's really caught imagination. And it turns out, you know, in the tribe that we've all been using music as as disaster planners. Mm. Um, And one of the things I've really learned sometimes is the power of going away. I find it very hard in the pandemic to work from home. Um, and do, we were particularly doing a lot of what's called excess death planning and mortuary planning. And exactly as you describe, I came out of my upstairs office, came downstairs, and both kids were literally at the bottom of the stairs saying, "What's for tea?" And what I learned early on was I was going to have to, I was going to have to separate home and work during the pandemic, as I'd always done. That's been a big thing for me, and what I call the kind of demobbing. So I like it when there's a journey. Uh, you know, I, I get um, for reasons I explain in the book. I get driven a lot, so getting coming home is really important to me. Fire a journey, and I play my music. Um, but I have a I have a family that keep me so grounded, um, and are very they're very quick to say, mm. you know, you've got kind of computer face. You know, you're not paying attention, mum. So, um, but yeah, I, it's um, it's I've always seen it as a privilege. I get told I get told that I know that yeah. <laughs> computer face. I know exactly the one. <laughs> Yeah, you've had an inc- extraordinary, extraordinary career, and, and you know the the benefit that you have given the the victims and the future victims of all this, all these all these disasters is is immeasurable. When you see in the aftermath of disaster, people who do not know each other help each other. What does that do for you? Um, you, you, that's how I managed to do my work. It's always a, it's always a privilege. You see amazing things, and humans are great. And I don't, I think a lot of the the climate discussions are injected with this fear and this uncertainty. And you know, I planned for a pandemic for fifteen years, and then I saw it. And you know, I saw a very different one, I think, to other people because I just constantly saw, as you say, humans looking out for humans. Um, we will be okay. And, um, you know, I I have huge, huge faith in that. Um, There will be dark times and there will be there will be good times. There will be the the, the disaster and there will be the rebuilding and the individual amounts of survivance, which is coming through these things. I write about this a lot with with not just getting through, but coming through with humour. You know, one of the greatest things of my my job is the amount of of humor that you see community to community not we you know people think we use gallows humor as responders or that's never dark humor i don't use that at all what makes me laugh harder than i'll laugh at anything else is humor within a community so you know things like the um, um you know you're from christchurch campaign which was all about sort of making light of some of the building challenges and it was so so needed the smiles and so I think it will be it will be okay with alongside this huge amount of work that we've got to do before and during. So, yeah, it's um, it's I call myself a pessimistic optimist. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you, and I, I'm I'm really grateful that you, you you took the time today. Thank you so much. My pleasure, absolutely. That was Professor Lucy Easthope. Her book is called When the Dust Settles. It's out right now. You can find her on Twitter where she is quite verbose and wonderful. Lucy Gobag, L-U-C-Y-G-O-B-A-G. Lucy Gobag on Twitter. I can't thank her enough. And that was a really freaking good chat. I really needed it, actually. It's it's really, really cool. I think about it all, all the time, you know, when I'm on the motorcycle, 
you know, I'm not in a, in a morbid, grim, wishing damage or death upon myself kind of way, but I do kind of always keep in mind that, you know, the more I ride, the more chance I have that I will come off my motorbike. And it's the same with my bicycle. You know, I know I've come off my bicycle. I've broken bones coming off my bicycle. I've nearly killed someone coming off my bicycle. That's another story. But just it's acceptance of risk. Being an acceptance of risk is so important. I, th- I found something really powerful. Well, Lisa well, said a bunch of stuff, but one of the things like this, the idea that nothing bad ever happens is, is a very much a modern Western idea. And it is silly because bad things happen in our community all the time, but we've kind of built this facade around us where bad things don't happen. But they do, if you look around, bad things happen all the time, all the time. Not to everybody, but it is a possibility. You know, I think about, you know, my own situation. I've said it before. You know, I'm dealing with complications from um, a hip surgery that didn't work, and that's okay. 0.02% of complications of a surgery doesn't mean no percent of complications, and this is what 0.02% looks like. And being an acceptance of, of that risk and understanding that that's a risk and, you know, that there's a pathway out of here, but just understanding that humans are pretty bad at assessing risk and, I guess, figuring out that, to live your life thinking that nothing bad will ever happen, well, that is a fantasy. Understanding that low risk doesn't mean no risk means that you do things like, okay, I'll see you later, honey. And when you say goodbye, you really let them know how much you love them. Because you might be the best driver in the world and I might be the best driver in the world. But the other person on the other side of the road who falls asleep at the wheel and takes us out, well, that's got nothing to do with you or me. But at least we know that the person we say goodbye to knows how we feel. And that experience of life, I think I'd much rather that. You know, I don't want to not come home from my trip to the shops, but it happens to people all the time. And that's a part of owning a car. That's a part of getting around. That's, I go on. When the Dust Settles is her book, it's really good, especially the September 11 stuff. It's really, really, really good. And um, it's not grim because it, all of it comes back to reflecting on You know, we live this finite amount of hours that we're alive. And every day there's ways that our lives could change irrevocably. So how are we going to make this day as good as it can be? And that's all we've got really, isn't it? It's actually quite beautiful. I love that conversation. Thanks so much for being a part of the show. If you need me, send Osher email at gmail.com. That's my email address. I also love to see where you're listening to the show. So take a photo of what you're looking at and send it to me right now. Just DM on Instagram, it's fine. I'll talk to you on Wednesday. Until then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.